Hey. You're listening to Avid Research. Avid Research. Avid Research. An Australian STEM podcast. Where we answer the questions you never quite got around to asking. Welcome back to the show team. My name's Amelia. Today we have yet another awesome guest on the show. I know I keep coming up with them, but this one is very cool. We've got Dr. Amy, who is a breast cancer researcher. Welcome to the show, Dr. Amy. Thank you, Amelia. Hopefully starting with an easy question. What is your job? I am a breast cancer researcher, which is kind of a big open-ended title. There's so many things you could do in breast cancer, but I guess I'm a molecular biologist or a molecular pathologist. And for the people out there who maybe don't know what either of those two things are, are you able to elaborate a little bit on that? I really um, am interested in the genetic background behind breast cancer. And I work mostly in the kinds of breast cancer that you don't inherit through your family. So I want to look at the genetic drivers of disease. Interesting, because the the way breast cancer is talked about in the general population is that it is predominantly if your mum had it, if your aunt had it, you should definitely like be really on top of those checkups kind of thing. That's exactly right. And the interesting thing is that really breast cancer is so common now that actually even if you did have a family member with breast cancer, it doesn't necessarily mean it's inherited. So one in seven Australian women will will have a breast cancer in their lifetime. So that means obviously that not all breast cancers are one. Exactly. Yeah. So we say breast cancer, but when we when we say it like that, we really mean hundreds of different types of breast cancer. Is is there a higher number of cancers of the breast as opposed to other body parts? Not necessarily. In, in And this is the kind of massive field of sort of epidemiology, I guess. But um, in, in, say, Australia, there's a lot more skin cancers than, than breast cancers. Um, and sometimes we think about it, it's a question of whether you are just identifying a cancer and take it out and there's no long-term effects or if we're talking about the sickness and the sometimes mortality that is associated with different cancers, so the burden of disease. Mm. So for, for breast cancer, we actually do pretty well at treating breast cancer these days. And for just over 90% of patients diagnosed with a breast cancer, they will still be doing quite well at the five-year mark. And this is a five-year survival, which is kind of the measurement of, of how well we can treat people. So for some other cancers, say pancreatic or something like that, the five-year survival is really poor um, because we don't have a good grasp on how to treat that very well yet. Well, that's fantastic news for breast cancer people. That's It's always nice to have a positive statistic to sort of like hold a little bit of hope. Exactly. And I think that that's really um, a lot of the, the drive around kind of pink everything, which there is some pink fatigue, I appreciate, but the funds that have raised have, have really, really helped how we can manage breast cancer patients. You said there was a high, like, well, one in seven is a lot of people to experience like anything. Is there, is there an increase in breast cancer? Is, is that a thing? It, Kind of, yes, but that's because we screen for it and we're really good at finding it early. So we probably find more now than we ever did, um, but we can manage a lot of those much better because they're smaller, they haven't spread, 
and we can we and we have more effective drugs but say historically you probably wouldn't realize there was a breast lesion until you had a really what we call like a palpable mass like a, a basically a lump that you can feel really easily you know and thinking back to some of those like is there's that beautiful is it a Renoir painting whether whoops actually it's a Rubens the the lady in the portrait clearly has a breast cancer because her breast is all kind of dimpled and you know there's evidence of a tumor so that that's what would have happened historically but now we can find these really tiny things that haven't become symptomatic or or are, are very small and we can remove them and obviously like that's lower physical cost to the person it's lower actual cost to the medical system like it's just better all around to get in there early and nip it in the bud absolutely to take out a small tiny piece of tumor is is vastly better than having to take off like the whole breast in a mastectomy so it kind of minimizes all of the morbidity associated with that and and the hospital times and all that kind of stuff so for people who are feeling a bit of pink fatigue let me get it there's there's a lot of pink ribbons it clearly is making a difference and that's that's important. Absolutely. Yeah, it, it really is. So are you able to tell us a little bit about the cancers that you're working on? They're, they're obviously a bit special. Yeah, well, actually, they're called special types. You, you hit the nail on the head there, Amelia. Um, <laughs> the, the kind of breast cancers that I'm interested in are these are not the most common. So one of the breast cancers that I focus on is called a lobular breast cancer, and it is the second most common type of breast cancer and it accounts for sort of 10 to 15% of all breast cancers. And the other breast cancer that I focus on is called metaplastic breast cancer. And this one's much less common. It's about 1% of all the breast cancers, but it's a particularly nasty one. And so when you think about all the patients worldwide with breast cancer, it actually accounts for a significant amount of breast cancer deaths. And they're both special types because the way that that a pathologist in the in the hospital diagnoses the breast cancer is they look to see if they have any special features when they're looking at a section of the tumour. And if they don't see any, then it becomes an invasive carcinoma of no special type. But if they do see some of these special features, then they can categorise it as one of the special types. And so they're the ones that I'm looking at. They've been historically less well studied. They haven't really been included in some uh, clinical trials as much because they're just a little bit different and people haven't really been clear on how to how to manage them but the, the spotlight's really coming onto these guys at the moment so we've been been able to do some really cool work on them now. Well I imagine that's a benefit of nailing your average tumour. Yeah. <laughs> like then then you get to look at the this the special little snowflake ones that are a little bit more difficult and need a bit more exactly I've never thought about cancers this way as being like I don't know the way it's talked about is just like oh it's the big C they're all they're all cancer (laughs) yeah and and people um compare other you know like you could say I've you know my so-and-so has a has a breast cancer and someone else will be like oh yeah you know my sister-in-law had a colon cancer they're, they're so different. It's really amazing to see, A, down the microscope, how different they really are, but even within breast cancer, how different they are. When I first started to really appreciate that, my mind was blown. <laughs> Just, yeah, the levels that you, you can use to differentiate these different types of, of one cancer type. Are you able to give us a, a nice little intro to what is cancer? Because it's sounding like it's a catch-all word 
for a lot of like quite a spectrum of a medical thing. Yep, exactly. So really cancer is just undifferentiated, uh, sorry, uncontrolled growth. So it's really just when a group of cells have lost self-regulation in terms of dividing and, and, and what they're doing. So they're really just uncontrolled division of cells. Um, and then the more that happens, the more genetic changes that kind of build up in those cells and then selection pressures force these groups of cells to do different things and some can become really nasty and aggressive, which means, and we say aggressive a lot in cancer research, but what that actually means is that they grow quickly, they can spread, they can be quite difficult to treat. Whereas some other cancers, we call them indolent, which when I first read that the first time, I thought was hilarious that we talk about lazy cancers. Some of them are really slow growing and yeah, unlikely to spread. So there really is a massive spectrum of disease. So it just sort of sounds like a cell or two goes rogue. They find some friends that go rogue and together they kind of band up and some of them are like lazy rogue cells and some of them are like, yeah, let's do this. (laughs) Exactly. Yep. And then some of them are really good at dividing. And so they really take over the, the growth they go really fast and then they kind of squash out any of the, the cells that weren't keeping up. So and that's what we call that kind of clonal expansion when a group of the clones um, really take over their own little niche there. And that's kind of around the, the selection pressures as well. And that, and that really plays into the spread of cancer, which is called metastasis. And this idea that sometimes the metastasis is really influenced by how the the, tum- the first tumour was treated and whether that treatment resistance has given it an edge over the other cells that died. Yeah, if you accidentally killed off all the lazy ones and it's just the uh, the real hardcore dudes that are left. Exactly, yeah. There, there are so many like social analogies that you could draw with this one. It's fantastic. Yes, it is really funny. There's a particular researcher that we work with called um, Dan Nicolau and he loves an amazing analogy, social analogies, and they really they fit so well. It's mind-boggling. Is, is it the, the two that you're kind of focused in on or the one, sorry, the ones that you're focused in on, Do you, how would you characterise them? Um, so the lobular breast cancer is sometimes known as the lazy one. It's slightly more slow-growing. And the five-year survival rate is good, which means that we can treat it pretty well at the start. But what we're starting to understand is that the cells that are left behind, they do come back. And so there's a chance that in the future, sort of at the 10-year mark, these cancers might return. And when these ones do return, if they return, they don't always, but if they return, they go to really different organs. So... When one of your kind of run-of-the-mill breast cancers, if it spreads, it tends to go to liver, lung and bone and maybe brain. But these lobular breast cancers, they go to the ovaries, gastrointestinal tract, peritoneum, like really different different kind of spots. And so there's a really old-school theory that still holds true called the seed and soil theory, which talks about how um, different seeds need different soils in order to grow. So maybe these lobular cancers need to go to different organs to grow better. Hopefully that's not too confusing. 
Oh, no, no, no. It's fascinating. Does that then, does where it wants to go, like, obviously, I'm giving it autonomy here. Cancer doesn't have a little brain that goes, (laughs) I'm going to go on a trip. But does that then indicate to you, like, are you able to reverse that and be like, well, clearly it needs X, Y, and Z in its environment to thrive. I can use that to target it. Yeah, so that's a big, big field of research at the moment, especially in the brain. And some of the really cool researchers that I that I work with in our lab, but also like around the world, really trying to understand how different kind of like growth signaling pathways can enhance the growth of these tumors in different sites. And so we we look at those to better understand and so that we can target them. It, it's a bit of like reverse engineering. It's a little bit of like hunting detective work there's a lot of different bits in this yes yeah so I don't focus as much on the metastasis end but sometimes when you I mean if you think about it clearly it's really hard to disentangle and, and just focus in on one piece of the puzzle so we do have to look at it kind of holistically a bit but yeah there's lots of different kind of subcategories of the research that that we do and and that goes on around Australia and around the world where people really try to narrow in on different parts. Are you able to tell us a little bit about what an average day at work looks like for you? Yeah, of course. An average day for me now is a bit different to what it looked like at the start of my career, where the day would have been go to the lab, be in a lab all day, and then go home. Now there's a lot less lab time, a lot more computer time, but I spend most of my day either analysing data writing grants, hopefully writing papers and and pulling together presentations and that kind of thing. I meet with students and other team members for the kind of bigger projects that we are involved in and make sure every everything's on track and coming together and hopefully spend a little bit of time on the microscope, although even that's changed now, whereas historically you would spend a lot more time at the microscope now we can have a computer scan the slides and I can look at the slides on my computer. So yeah, a lot of computer time now, but I'm not sad about it because I'm still doing analysis. Yeah. Yeah. So you go from focusing so much on the experiments to understanding, I guess, what the data is showing you. Exactly. Yeah. And also um, just because genomics, which is kind of the collective study of the genome and all of the genes together as a, as an international discipline, has really come together in these huge consortia to do these really big studies where they look at all of the genes in lots of different types of cancer. And a lot of that is available now, publicly available on these international repositories. So you can do a ton of data analysis on, on different cancer types that have already been sequenced and had their genomes yeah, sequenced and, and, and put up to be looked at by anyone. So you can really do a lot of basic research from your laptop. Wow, so a lot of this data is public. Yeah, so there's um, heaps of public data now and then some of the um, more really kind of specific questions that we have, we will use our own samples and then anal- and, and profile them, so do the sequencing on those tumours and then we'll analyse that. So with this sequencing, does that mean like each cancer has its own genetic fingerprint? Yes, that's exactly right. Yeah, so when we do sequencing, you may or may not choose to also sequence the patient's germline DNA or like their blood DNA, the normal DNA, and so that you could compare and see which of the changes are inherited and which of the changes have 
occurred randomly in the cancer. So if two unrelated people have the, the same sort of cancer, obviously not the identical cancer, will yeah. they have, like how similar will those cancers' DNAs be? So um, quite similar for some genes. So there are some genes that are frequently mutated in lots of different cancer types um, and then there are other genes that are, fre- are less frequently mutated. In some cancers, like colorectal cancer or melanoma or lung cancer, there's these, and a lot of the blood cancers as well, there's really like a few genes that are super important and are often mutated like in high proportions of patients. So you can look at that straight away and work out hopefully which treatment might be relevant for those patients. In breast cancer, because they're so different for a start, there's a lot more of these kind of driver genes, but they seem to be mutated a lot lower frequencies. So there's no one kind of top hit special winner for breast cancer driver gene. This actually looks like there's close to 150 different driver genes. And the most frequently mutated we see as being mutated in like 35% of breast cancers, 36%. So even the most commonly changed gene only occurs in a third of the patients. Right. Okay. Because I, I don't know. Yeah, I think I'd always thought that each one would be the same. But obviously you're working off, yeah, you're working off different base baselines of every human is unique. So obviously something that mutates from them has to be unique to some extent as well. So there's, even though we're we're looking at the cancers that randomly occur that are not inherited, that don't have a mutation in one of these um, sort of well-known genes, BRCA1 or 2 or BRCA1 or 2, there's still genetic predisposition. So this can still be family cancers that don't have those mutations and they may have like a collection of different variants that have predisposed them. So rather than having one mutation in a really important well-characterized genes maybe they have a collection of changes that gives them like a risk profile that means they were more likely to get breast cancer than someone else but that um that's not my specific area of research but it is a, a huge area at the moment to try and work out if we could predict people's risk before they get a breast cancer yes and that's an ongoing sort of like concept in anything genetic is like can we do a screen and see if you you're likely to have these things but then there's also the ethical of like well maybe we can screen to see if you'll be a criminal exactly and and that is a huge area and really like society wise we need to have some big conversations about that too because some people are really keen to know everything they're like tell me all of the risks that i have do a whole body mri tell me everything you find whereas other people are very much. Don't tell me anything that's not about the breast cancer. I only want to fix this right now. I don't want to know anything else. So yeah, there's there's a lot to work work through. Yeah, there's some big discussions because as well, if it if it is a genetic illness or yeah, if it's a genetic thing, then that's also going to tell your relative something yeah. about themselves to some extent as well. And whether they consent to having that knowledge is like exactly oh, that's complicated. <laughs> exactly yeah and and depending on what we're talking about as well like if it's like you have a slightly higher risk of getting a skin cancer so you should risk mitigate and wear sun cream every day or 
you have a higher risk of breast cancer, therefore you should get a double mastectomy and also have your mm. ovaries out. Like these are, you know, the spectrum there as well is massive. So you really want people to be informed and and we need to be sure that these risk profiling that we're doing is accurate. And I imagine for that you need bucket loads of data. Exactly, yeah. What are some of the skills that you need to be able to do this work? Um, I guess from a, like from a personal skill set, being organised and attention to detail and those kind of just being really thorough. And, and a lot of those skills are just about being a researcher anyway, like, you know, crossing your T's and dotting your I's, making sure it's all, you know, really rigorous. From a, in terms of specifically for the kind of work I do, I, my background in molecular biology and genetics is really helpful. I do look back now and think that I probably could have chosen some of my undergraduate courses a little bit more strategically um, and a little bit more of a stats background would have helped. But I think as well, the world we live in today means that if you find a gap in your knowledge, you can educate yourself on it so quickly. I mean, YouTube, thanks everyone for putting together every video I've ever needed to understand how to do it. A different stats test so you really can kind of patch up any missing bits as you go along yeah there's some foundational skills you need but yeah if you need to run a specific thing in r someone will have made you a tutorial yes, yep. exactly yeah um and then yeah i mean it goes without saying really that the uh the microsoft package is what we all need to have as sort of second nature but it is amazing when we come across students who are really not comfortable in excel or making a powerpoint or something and it's quite eye-opening so it's become so common for that to be what you need like that's a basic requirement yeah right to the point where you probably don't even think about it now exactly yeah Mm. and that's interesting because i've seen a lot of primary school kids particularly they're all learning everything on an ipad and that is not the same as making your way around a windows machine Exactly right. Um, yeah. So there's a, a really, uh, yeah, we'll, we will see how that pans out. <laughs> yeah. We'll see if we have a whole generation that can't actually type. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Because when, when all these researchers say that they need to be able to write, they're not, they're not sitting down with a pen and paper, obviously. They're typing and being no. able to touch type, that helps. <laughs> yeah. So when I first started out, which was a long time ago, I d- we did, some people did still write with a pen and paper and then tr- like type it into a computer so they could, yeah, because back then we didn't all have our own computers. We had like a computer room where you could go and do some work on a computer and on a shared kind of hot desk computer and then you'd go back to the lab or go back to your desk. So, but that was in the uh, very early 2000s, <laughs> um, whereas now you just have to have a computer at your desk. Yeah. World changes. So computer skills, people, like legit yeah. computer skills, this is not you being able to play yeah. Fortnite. Um. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. That won't help you. How have you ended up in this job? What What was your path, say, from high school to where you are now? Not. It wasn't a straightforward path. And I was thinking about this this morning. It was actually quite convoluted, but now it seems like it was important that it was in order to get me to this point. Um, so I, my undergraduate degree was really a broad science degree and I did a lot of, in, in first year I did a lot of biology and I really liked that and I was doing sort of 
zoology and a bit of botany as well and as well as genetics and I knew I liked the genetics from the start so that's always been there by second year I thought I wanted to be some really cool and interesting botanist so I did a lot of botany subjects but then I couldn't kind of grasp how I would take that further so I thought maybe I'll do some more microbiology subjects and I did quite a few of those and I I really liked microbiology and and medical microbiology in particular and then I, in third year, did a subject that was like genes and disease. And it was my epiphany moment. I was like, oh, no, this is, this is what I need to do. This is where it's at for me. And I really loved it. And I really liked the lecturer at the time. And then I thought by the end of my last year, I was, I was really tired. And I thought, you know what, I'm going to have a year off and I'm going to travel and waft around Europe. And so I got a retail job and saved really hard, but the the dollar was worth nothing. So my wafting around Europe for a year was actually six weeks. And I came back and went, I really need to be a scientist now. So I approached that lecturer that I really liked and I got a vacation scholarship, um, which is like a six-week project in his lab. And I was working on really cool, um, well, interesting, um, not cool for the patients, of course, on... um, these uh, the kind of skin diseases where there's a really clear genetic cause um, and we were trying to work out which which genes um, were mutated in these in families with some of these rare genetic diseases like uh, epidermolysis and these ichthyoses and um, quite cool sounding words but really devastating diseases so I, I did that and then I thought no yeah research this is for me I did an honors degree in the same lab looking at skin cancers And then I stayed in the same lab and did my PhD. And then uh, Europe was calling again. So I just found a job advertised in nature that I thought aligned with what I wanted to do. Did an interview over the phone, left the country and arrived in London and started working in that job, like literally landed on the Friday, started on the Monday and um, was there for about two weeks before I realised that this was not going to work for me. And I... I really think everyone needs to really think about their gut experience. I just knew that that wasn't where I needed to be. And it took me probably another four to six weeks to realize I I have to get out. And so I looked, I just really looked at all the labs that were around and thought what sounded good to me. And I emailed one of them and they said that they were, they had had a job advertised which would have advertised like right after I accepted the other job. And then, so I would never have seen the advertisement. And they said they were currently doing the interviews and did I just want to come along for an interview? And so I got that job and that was working in colorectal cancer in a clinical research lab. And it was perfect. It was exactly where where I needed to be. And I stayed in that lab for just over four years and before coming back to Australia um, when I came back to Australia, I was um, I was pregnant at the time. My husband and I came back, and as a postdoc, you can't really get a job when you're obviously about to go on leave. It would be, yeah, not the right thing. So I knew some people who were working in breast cancer, and they were running a, a tissue biobank, and they needed some data analysis support. So I did that a few days a week while I was pregnant before I went on maternity leave. And then through that work, met a lot of people and then someone got a grant and hired me at the end of my maternity leave. So, and I've been there ever since. 
Well, that was a roller coaster. Uh, absolutely. Like at the time, it all seemed like really natural decisions. But when you look back, I think, wow, really? You were going to be a botanist, Amy? <laughs> um, anyway, here we are. <laughs> it does sound lovely, though. Like you can just imagine being really good at sketching. Some like magically, you'd get good at sketching, and you'd just like sit there and draw. Yeah. Draw pretty exotic plants. I think, surrounded by butterflies exactly I think I was just really enamored with the idea of knowing a lot about one thing like becoming an expert in something mm. um I think that really I because because it seemed to me like the all of the lecturers in in botany just seemed to know heaps and seem really impressive and knowledgeable so yeah it was more of the concept I loved but I still like plants so yeah well that's good it's very in right now yes <laughs> was any of this your plan when you left high school, like were you sitting there in year 11 or 12 and like, yeah, biology is my favorite subject or? Yes. I, I knew that I wanted to do biology um, to a point. I was also thinking maybe I wanted to be a diplomat and cause I was learning Italian and I thought that would be really good too. So, but yeah, biology. And I kind of had this, I was listening to, you know, some of the other people you've interviewed and they have these really nice stories of being inspired by an amazing teacher in in high school or something. I kind of got in trouble in grade 11 for, in biology specifically, I had read the book basically. I already knew what I needed to know for the course um, and was sitting just kind of drawing in my book distractedly and we had a very, very old white male teacher at the time who walked past and said, looked at me and said, um, ah, see, um, I've always knew that science wasn't for girls. <gasps> and I was just like, what? I'll show you. And from that moment I was like, I will be a scientist. <laughs> so, um, yeah. So that was a while ago though. Like that was in 1994. And so, yeah, I, I was, yeah, I'm... <laughs> I'd like to think that spite didn't initiate my career, but um, I'm certainly glad that I didn't listen to him. Yeah, because that, that could have gone two ways. Yes. Yeah. Very important to note that you're not the only person who had who I've interviewed who had a very similar situation. And in, in that case, they were very clear that that did inspire them to be like, well, I'm going to show you. Yeah. <laughs> Over the years, I've had these moments of like, should I just pop back in and see if he's still there? Let him know that I've got a PhD now. Um, yeah, yeah. I really was. I, I'm, I mean, I was always very much directed on that pathway, so it, it was kind of motivating. Yeah, there, there, there are lovely stories of teachers being wonderful, but there's some pretty horrible interactions that happen with teachers as well. And I think it's important to be open and honest about both of them. Yes. Yeah. Were there any other pivotal moments in this journey, like? where people provided advice or you had like a gut feeling, as you said earlier, where things just sort of went click? I feel like since I started in the breast cancer lab, like towards the end of working on colorectal cancer, I I really knew that I was in the right kind of area. And, and in some ways it was, it's very similar to what I'm doing now. It was just a different um, organ site basically, but it was still very much genetic the genetics of the cancer and what that means. Um, there's that Microsoft update. My apologies. <laughs> really working on patient samples was really important to me. I felt like some of the work that I'd done previously was so focused on 
different models of cancer and um, they can be incredibly useful. But I was starting to understand that every patient is so different and how would we ever get a realistic answer if we weren't working on the patient samples? So that became really important to me and we were doing some work with pathologists when I was in the UK and getting them to work with us to you know really explain the samples and and what what I was looking at and I was really drawn to that and then the opportunity arose to work in a pathology driven breast cancer lab and it and it just really worked exactly where I wanted to be where I could do do the research but on different patient samples that had good clinical input so that we could really understand what we were looking at and why it was important or, or why this particular series of cases wasn't going to give me the answer I was looking for. And so I really like working right at the interface of research and the clinic. I, I think it's because I feel like the closer I am to the clinic, the more likely it is to make a change for patients. Because that's the ultimate goal, right? Like for this kind of research, doing it so that we can give people a better outcome. And if I'm working too far away from that interface, it seems like it will take a really long time to get there. Whereas at the moment, some of the work we're doing, we're, we're taking biopsies from the breast cancers and we're sequencing them. And, and this kind of work really is, is quite likely to become standard of care in the future. So uh, in the not too distant future, hopefully. So I feel like we're really close, close to making changes. Yeah. And that's obviously motivating if you can see something I'm doing now is likely to become just standard practice in a couple of years. Yes, absolutely motivating. Yeah. Is there anything more motivating than that that helps you get up in the morning and makes this like, yes, let's go do some data analysis? I really like the discovery element of it all, but that's kind of underpinning research, but just that real kind of sleuthing factor that you might find something. You know, you might find something really important. You know, when I'm looking at these sequences, what if what we're looking at has the answer that we've everyone's missed till now, you know? So there's that kind of detective element that I quite like. And maybe if I'm just a little bit more thorough than the last person. Exactly, exactly. Like just, yeah, those little things, you know, and people must have these eureka moments and do have eureka moments all the time and, and publish amazing papers that really change things for what doctors do day to day and maybe I could be that person we will celebrate it when it happens yeah. <laughs> how long have we been able to sequence things for so the way we talk about sequencing now we call it next generation which I I find so funny that's very Star Trek okay it isn't it so the first generation was has been happening for a while and by the time I started my honors and PhD, we could do sequencing, a type of sequencing called Sanger sequencing. And we had just reached this time in science where people could do that for you. So you could send it to a service and we'd send our samples to the Australian Genome Research Facility or AGRF. So we do some kind of DNA amplification steps and, and hone in on the part of the DNA we wanted sequenced. And then we'd send off that um, to get that sequenced and we'd get a, um, in a few days, we'd get um, a data file back that had these really cool graphs, like it's called a chromatogram, of these coloured peaks that would tell you whether they'd found an ATG or C at which position. And 
that's because the the piece of kit needed was really expensive. So only somewhere like AGRF could have that sequencer. And it was like um, a capillary-based method of doing it. And it was so cool at the time that we could do that because the, the previous iteration involved casting these enormous gels and then resolving out the different lengths of DNA fragments. And so I honestly just missed that phase. So that had just kind of phased out for some labs. And I'm very grateful that I didn't have to do that because that would take a lot of time. And so it was around the time of my PhD that the first release of the human genome occurred. And that was around 2000. And um, to to be learn, a student learning at that time was amazing because, you know, the everyone was so excited that it was happening and it was really drew scientists together to get it done um, and to get it analysed. It was quite amazing to sort of read about it unfolding and it took, you know, that was obviously like a massive effort over many years of millions and millions of dollars and people's time. And then now we're in a, in a place where we can send off a, a sample or and have its whole genome, like everything that it took the genome project 10 plus years to do, we can do that in like two days now for eight patients at a time through this next generation sequencing approaches. So as with kind of Moore's law, everything has gotten quicker and faster and smaller and but smaller but also bigger at the same time. So um, we generate way more data and a lot faster. And then um, really it's kind of inverted. So 20 years ago the effort was massively at the the wet lab end, kind of getting it sequenced, the physicality of that and getting the sample through the process, whereas now that bit is quite straightforward and we spend all the time at the computational and figuring out what it means and what algorithms should we use to make sure that the quality of that data is good. Yeah, so there's been a massive switch in my career uh, into, into how that works. But the sequencing that we do now is it's really quite amazing how much information you can get. And, um, and also something that I also find amazing is that the number of – we really need computer scientists like hardcore computational people – in the biology end of things. And I, I, I had always thought of those things as being so separate, but the amount of computation that goes on now is phenomenal. So, yeah, there's plenty of scope for people who are more techie to get involved in biology as well. And it's probably also might be worth it as well if you're interested in biology at the moment to start thinking about learning a bit of coding data analysis too so that, yeah. yeah. Yes. That would be, yeah, I mean, that's um, one of the big holes in my skill set is I would love to be able to write a line of code and, and get an answer immediately to a question I have rather than spending two days in Excel sorting. Um, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I'm sure there's like special Python packages for your field. Yes, there's just an amazing amount of resources and I try to collaborate wisely, Amelia, with people who can do those things and they know all about it. <laughs> It's good to have your field of uh, expertise, yes. <laughs> Other than my wonderful piece of advice just then to any young people, what advice would you like to give to whether they're high school students or first or second year uni students? Have you got any advice that you'd like to give to those people? 
Yeah, there's lots of really cool open days. And I think it's really good to go and see what it actually means to be a scientist. And I, I remember going to an open day of the, it's called QIMR Berghofer now, but it was just the Queensland Institute of Medical Research. When I was about 16, I went to an open day and I really was drawn to what it, the whole situation looked like. But I didn't, before I went into the Institute, I had no idea what it would look like inside and how it would work. So I think it's really good to just be informed and go and go to the open days and have a look at, you know, how, how the people are working and, and whether that sits well with you. And if you're an undergraduate student and you think you like it, offer to volunteer in someone's lab. Um, scientists are really keen to get young people involved in research. We're very happy to talk about our work and um, show people around, but we're also really keen to have someone come and do some of the some work with us in the lab or just watch or yeah so there's there's a lot of scope but definitely get informed and make sure it's something that you're you can see yourself doing when you know what it is that the people are doing yeah yeah don't rely on perceptions in public media to work out whether or not like it's very easy to develop an idea that's all not related to reality it's not csi and things take a way longer way longer Although in fairness, by the time kids these days end up in your position, it might be like a desktop oh, completely. device if they just like drop a bit of blood in and it spits out the, the data. Uh, yeah, hopefully it's happen- happening in the GP's office by the time these guys are through. Wow. Okay, and I'm just going to put a call out that if there's some people who can study the ethics of this as well and inform consent, that sort of stuff, that'd be great. <laughs> <laughs> yep, yep. Is there any citizen science stuff around breast cancer? Is that a thing? Not so much citizen science, but there's a lot of advocacy that's really important. So we need to talk to people about the kind of research we're doing and make sure that that's what they want us to do. So and really make sure that we're addressing the questions that are the questions for patients and their families. So around things like, around like the whole genome sequencing idea is that something that patients want and so with the move to kind of genomics becoming part of precision medicine and how we manage patients generally it's really important that people who are informed about genomics and research can help their family members understand so I think advocacy is really important Um, and I think as well being part of research is important as well. So if you have a family member who is going through, you know, a cancer diagnosis or something and they've been asked to participate in research but they're really nervous about it or unsure, if you have a background that can help them to feel more comfortable with what's going on, please help them to understand what what the researchers are asking for. So I think that's what's really important is just uh, helping everyone to understand what, what's going on and what it means for people. Because it definitely sounds like like everything about this sounds really open and it's not like people are going to get who have a special cancer, the scientists aren't going to be like, oh, fantastic, we're going to dissect you right now in my secret underground lab. <laughs> it is all very open. Um, and um, the lab that I work in, my uh, mentor, Professor Lakani, set up a, a tissue bank many years ago now where we can send patients to let us keep any of the breast tissue that the pathologists were going to throw away and we keep it in the freezer and then we use it to do research. And and that's part of an informed consent with ethics 
and ethics approval. But part of that is sometimes people are quite nervous. And so um, it's really important that we can explain how we will manage people's sample and data and protect their identity and but also use the sample that was going to go in the bin for some research that might better the next generation of patients. Although it's teeny tiny bit creepy, the idea that there's a freezer with bits of breast in it. Yeah, a little bit creepy. I'm much more comfortable with that freezer than I was with the freezer of all the stool samples when I worked in the colorectal cancer lab. feel a lot better about the breast cancer tissue. <laughs> yeah, there's no super winning in that one. but No. <laughs> We've got to look after these things somehow. Exactly, exactly. Um, and, and, you know, the, the people that have donated tissue to, to our resource I mean, some of those those tissues get shared with um, collaborators doing different projects as well. So we support lots of research around Australia. Um, and also we've um, been able to send off a lot of those samples to international consortia, um, these big um, multi-team, multinational groups of scientists who get together to try and really understand things. And so they published this amazing paper where they did a whole genome sequencing on 560 breast cancers which is phenomenal but to think that like 50 of those came from Brisbane is amazing so the people people anywhere around Australia donating their samples can really make an impact for for breast cancer patients or cancer patients all around the world. There's a teeny tiny bit of empowerment for anyone who is having a really bad day or bad week. Exactly. There's a little little shiny bit of light is there anything you wish the general public understood about your job? Like, is there some myths out there about breast cancer or about cancer researchers or something that you'd like to squish? I think that what we've really, well, firstly, the pink fatigue part where people go, no, well, breast cancer's had enough money. They should have figured it out by now. It's really hard and it takes a long time. So um, we haven't figured it all out, but we're really trying. Like people are trying really hard to get the answers we need. So there's that, but also that just research just genuinely takes a long time, unless, of course, you're working on a COVID vaccine, in which case, and you've had a billion dollars thrown at you, in which case things can happen very quickly and still be very rigorous. But in terms of the kind of research that we're doing here in Australia, it takes a while and we're trying really, really hard. They're not sitting there with their pink teacups and just sort of like, oh, wouldn't it be nice to solve breast cancer? (laughs) Yeah, not today. We'll try tomorrow. No, we really are, you know, a lot of people are working on it. And, you know, and then there's, yeah, there is a lot of funding, but things cost a lot of money and uh, things take time. Is there any, like, trickle across, like, if you find something out about breast cancer, is there the chance that it will then influence how we treat other cancers? Yes, and that is really a really cool concept um, and we are, we collectively researchers look at it in what they call these basket trials. And this has really come out of some cool research in the US where they realize that a genetic change that we find can match up to a drug. So we know that the drug will kill the cells that have this particular mutation. And so we know, say, for example, we know that it works well in lung cancer. So what we're trying to do now is find out if other types of cancer that have that same mutation will respond to the drug in the same way. So um, we know that it works in lung cancer, but why don't we give all the people who have 
pancreatic cancer, breast cancer, and colon cancer with that same mutation, that same drug, and see if we can treat it that way. So we're trying to really break down the silos between the different cancer types and see if we can and can spread out the share the love of the treatments that are working for different genetic changes. I like it. That makes a huge amount of sense. Yeah, it's it's really, really cool. And I'm sure for some for some drugs it's going to work really well. And for others it won't just because of this kind of context dependence. So how the different organ systems work and what what the gene does in or the gene and then the protein, what that does in breast cancer, in a breast cell versus in a colon cell is going to be different. But if the question is how different? Is it is it so different that the drug won't work or is it similar enough that it will? That's exciting. Yeah. Is there anything else that we haven't touched on that you'd like to share? I'm not sure. I really like what I'm doing and I'm really glad that I ended up here. But at the time when I was making decisions about my career, um, I didn't ever think I would get there and some like you know leaving that lab after I was only there for a very short time seemed like a a huge mistake career-wise but it wasn't really and I think go with go with what you feel is right yeah go with what you feel is right trust your gut and also like yeah your career isn't five years it's whatever it is 30 40 something like that like over that period of time, the things that feel like end of the world, like if I walk away from this job because my boss is a bully or anything like that, that won't be end of the world even a year down the track. Five years down the track, no one's going to look at that exactly. video CV. <laughs> yeah. And if and, and the thing is if you talk about that piece of your CV positively, then it's not an issue. So I was able to very clearly say, you know, when I went to the next job interview, look, this one's not working out for me. It's not the right fit. And I, and I need to move on and do something that is the right fit. But if you, if you labor on the negativity, then, you know, that's not gonna, not gonna sit well with anyone. I like it. So to wrap up, do you have a shout out? Have you got a virtual high five for someone or? Well, look, I think I should probably virtually high five to all the parent scientists who are currently in a Zoom meeting with a sign on their door, begging their children not to come in. As we've moved to the Zoom world, good job to all the parents who are still staying alive out there, <laughs> juggling everything. But also high five to you, Amelia, for shining a light on what people actually do. I think there's not enough information about what, you know, behind the title of the job title of what we actually do day to day. So thank you. No worries. Thanks so much for being part of it because I learned a lot today. <laughs> Oh, great. I'm, I'm glad I could share something new. Thank you so much for coming on the show, Dr. Amy. It has been absolutely fascinating. Thank you. Thanks so much for listening. If you like this podcast, you're an absolute gem of a human being and you should head over to avidresearch.com.au, sign up for our amazing email newsletter and get all the download on the upcoming episodes and maybe even get a bit of a sneak peek about what's coming next. If you've been enjoying this podcast, you should definitely subscribe. We're on Apple, Stitcher, Spotify, and even Google these days. Thanks. Thanks.